Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from an investor who has spotted what she believes is a generational opportunity to invest in the finest deep tech and science companies. In Europe in particular, I would say that for deep tech and deep science, the asset has perhaps been historically underutilised and under-supported, but we have all of the ingredients to be leading that fourth industrial revolution. That was Alice Newcomb-Ellis, founder and chief executive of Aron Innovation Capital. She came into the studio to talk to me recently about her search for the next generation of disruptive technologies. Tell us about your career in investment. You've spent a lot of time in America, both in San Francisco and Boston, in the investment business. What did you learn from that experience? Well, thank you, John. And I've been very fortunate to have worked at some of the most successful global investment firms, including TPG Capital and Lansdowne Partners, and to have watched and learned from the founders or principals of those firms, and to have had a wide range of experience all the way through early and late stage private equity to public market investing. And that's enabled me to understand the full investing value chain, if you like, and to reflect deeply on what's most important at each stage. And as you say, I've spent periods both in Silicon Valley and Cambridge Mass, the MIT Harvard hub. And the collection of those experiences really led me to realise that a generational opportunity exists to capitalise on the finest deep tech and deep science and that there's a gaping unmet need in terms of model to do so. And when you talk about this gaping unmet need, are you talking specifically about Britain, Europe, or is it the global phenomenon now, you think? I believe very strongly it's a global phenomenon. And so that was the initial process for how Aaron came about. And then I went to speak to the founders and current leaders of the iconic investment firms like Benchmark and Sequoia, and also divisionary entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Demis Hassabis. I wanted to test what's special about them. What do they do differently? And I think it boils down to this. They just don't follow preconceived entrenched ideas. They forge their own path. And that's what we're trying to do at Aaron. So we started from first principles. We feel that with disruption going on all around us, we need to be disruptive as an institution. OK. Can you tell us more about the model that you're going to try to pursue at Aaron Innovation? What makes you different from those Silicon Valley venture capital funds or those in Boston or anywhere else in the world? Yes, so we have five key differentiators, I'd say, that give us, in our minds, a unique edge. The first is our quite rare team structure. So we do have this founding science partner model, which comprises a group of Cambridge University's finest minds and most successful commercial scientists. The value of their technologies is over $140 billion combined. Which companies have they been involved in? What are the biggest names? Mm, so those would include Humira. It would include DNA sequencing technology. It would include Alaparib. It includes iris recognition technology and also geometric intelligence and AI business that was sold to Uber. And we don't know many investment firms with that track record. It's almost if you imagine a deep tech, deep science version of a few of the most successful Silicon Valley entrepreneurs getting together to start to fund and develop the next generation of breakthrough technologies. But very crucially, we also combine this with sharp, dynamic, premier US fund trained investment talent. So together we feel we get to have a unique edge to source, to diligence and to build deep tech, deep science companies. So I suppose that's the first element of differentiation. The second is that we accept risk, considered highly rewarded risk. So we don't invest in lower end, lower perceived risk opportunities that we think by definition erode returns. Rather, we look for asymmetric risk reward in companies that will penetrate or create large markets. And we seek home runs. 
So we want to be creating multi-billion dollar companies, not these low multiple quick flips. Wouldn't all VC companies say that? I'm not sure they do, actually. No, I think it's quite a rare phenomenon. And the data has shown that the very best funds are really looking for those home runs. Very best funds achieve 70 times multiples on those home runs. And the OK funds or the good funds achieve 20 times on those. I think it's quite rare to be wanting to take that kind of risk. Mm -hmm. And then the third element is that we don't just invest, we also build. So we have a dedicated engine providing business support to turn a great technology into a highly profitable company. The fourth is having corporate LPs as well as pure financial ones. Which are the companies that have signed up to this? Ah, so the ones that I can tell you about include Aviva and Associated British Foods. We're going to have a global FMCG company and a large bank and an energy company as well. So we want to support a small group of companies in different industries to be the disruptors rather than the disrupted in the changes that lie ahead, if you like. And so we give them insight and access to the latest technologies keeping them ahead of the competition. And for us, they're an excellent sounding board. So does a technology really fulfill a pressing commercial need? They'll tell you pretty quickly. And they also have the potential to provide access to billions of customers globally for our portfolio companies. And then the final differentiator is that we act with strong values and treat our founders well, motivating them to succeed. Like the path of a great technologist runs fast to a valued relationship of trust and a backer that can have a differentiated ability to impact the outcome of their venture. So that's something that's very important to us. All in all, we feel like we have quite a number of differentiators and edge to source diligence and build deep tech and deep science companies. Well, what's your impression about the kind of Sandhill Road VC companies? How seriously do they take Europe and the UK in particular? Most of their focus seems to be on China outside the US rather than Europe. I think there are two things to say to that. One is that you're absolutely right. Their focus has predominantly not been on Europe. And I find it astonishing that today 0.07% of the population of the world still receives 50% of the capital in Silicon Valley. The second thing to say to that is that as a result, the investment opportunity, particularly outside of Silicon Valley, is immense. And that does include Europe as well as elsewhere. In Europe in particular, I would say that for deep tech and deep science, the asset has perhaps been historically underutilised and undersupported, but we have all of the ingredients to be leading that fourth industrial revolution. We've seen a tenfold increase in Europe over the last five years in investment in deep tech, albeit from a low base. And actually, we've seen that tech jobs are growing 10 times faster than the rest of the European economy. How much money have you raised? We've raised over 100 million to date. Who's that from? That includes a number of firms, including Aviva, Whittington Investments, and pleasingly for us, a number of the Silicon Valley firms or family offices, both on the West Coast and East Coast. Can you name names in that area? I'm afraid not? I can't. No, uh, it's confidential. And you're saying that you're going for a higher risk profile in a way. You're really looking for those disruptive businesses. How confident are you that you're going to be able to generate the really attractive returns that your investors want? Well, it depends on us. And a lot of that is also down to our model and how we actually interact with the companies that we invest with. And that's what I like to talk about as our patient and active investment model. Could you say more about that? I mean, a lot of VC companies say that they bring the great expertise of their founders to bear on these companies and are both patient and active. From your experience, is that not the case, really? Or are you going to be very different? Yes. Yeah, so there's been quite a lot of talk about patient capital recently. And I must say, I dislike the term on its own. Sort of just sitting around waiting doesn't really feel good enough. 
So we're willing to take longer time frames than the quick flip when we see tremendous upside we want to capture, but we don't think it's enough to stop there. And I do really think that we're much more hands-on than a number of the other funds out there at the moment. What does that look like? So we have a dedicated engine with entrepreneurial expertise and business acumen to provide the structured, strategic, very hands-on support required to turn a valuable technology into a profitable reality. And this engine helps with business strategy, with team building, hitting milestones, generating customers and so forth. On top of this, we have pro bono or preferred relationships with a leading law firm and a leading accounting firm that help our early stage portfolio companies with corporate setup, with tax and IP, which is invaluable support for startup getting over an activation barrier. And then finally, perhaps most importantly, we believe in the power of mentoring and human capital. So our science partners have done it before. And they act as global magnets for ambitious entrepreneurs. And these science partners spend hours with our portfolios raising the ambition and vision of the founders. Now, you mentioned those scientific advisors and you've assembled an extraordinary roster of many of Britain's most eminent scientists, including Nobel Prize winners and so on. How did you go about persuading these scientists, who are obviously very busy people, that they should be supporting and actively participating in your fund? Yes, well, I'm often asked that question, but the reality is I did not try to persuade at all. So I went to ask questions and to listen. I knew that I did not have all of the answers and I didn't go to dictate. I went to ask, is there a need for this? How would we do this together differently? What would our vision and values be? And so through that, we came together to something that no one of us could have done alone. And so some of the people on your advisory panel and your founding partners include people like Sir Venki Ramakrishnan, who's the president of the Royal Society, Zubin Garamani, who's a professor of machine learning and an advisor to Uber, and Lord Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal, who has also been a guest previously on Tectonic. How are they going to get involved day to day in advising some of your portfolio companies? So they're very committed and very hands-on in a number of ways. Initially, they help us with sourcing because they do act as global magnets because they've done it before and entrepreneurs respect them and go to them. They help us with the all-important diligence and I wouldn't underestimate that because for deep tech and deep science, you need to have people who have expertise in those domains. And what we like so much is the integration between domains that we think is the future. So you mentioned people who have backgrounds in astronomy, to physics, to AI, to biology. And the fact is the future will be an intersection of those. And then they also do provide quite hands-on help with our portfolio companies and mentoring and being on boards. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Is there a particular locus of innovation and expertise in Cambridge, which is where most of your focus appears to be, or are you going to be investing across the rest of the UK and the rest of Europe? Yeah, well, so I should make clear that we don't invest only in Cambridge, or indeed only the UK. So we have no geographical constraints. The concept to me of a well-defined border today, I think, is a little illusory. But we do all come from the same heritage or pedigree, if you like, as you've mentioned. And we do feel there's something quite special about Cambridge. What is it that's so special about Cambridge? There are brilliant commercial minds that attract each other, And I think there's a culture that promotes thinking big. 
So not only focusing on what is interesting, but also on what is important. And it's what is important that will change the world and also generate commercial returns. And the talent in particular in deep tech and deep science, by which I mean machine learning, AI, physics, life sciences in Cambridge, is second to none. As you alluded to, Cambridge has 107 Nobel Prize laureates, of which 83 in hard sciences, and of which two are now my science partners. And the technologies that have also originated from there have created 200 billion of commercial value. And in my mind, it's a fallacy that scientists cannot be commercial. One of the things that um, is very striking in Silicon Valley when you go there is this kind of free flow of people between a lot of the research universities and entrepreneurial firms, thinking in particular of people like John Hennessy, who is an entrepreneur, president of Stanford, and now the chairman of Alphabet. That is seen as perfectly normal on the West Coast of America, but slightly less usual in Europe. Do you think there is a cultural barrier to this flow of people from the private sector into the public sector between universities and entrepreneurship? That's a very good question, actually. I don't think that there should be any such barrier, but you're absolutely right that there has been historically more of one here than there has been in the US, and I think that's something that we really should be breaking down. I would say that I wholly disagree with the notion that non-American people don't have an entrepreneurial spirit. I think the potential is vast. If anything, the fault historically has been with risk-averse investors rather than the investee companies, and there's a great opportunity to lift entrepreneurs and empower them to achieve their vision. Do you get the sense that more people are looking at these kind of investments in the traditional investment world? Or do you think they are still seen as very high risk and not something to be stuck in your average portfolio? I think it's less about them thinking they're high risk and more about not having necessarily the capabilities to diligence them. So it does require a very particular skill set to play in the deep tech and deep science, because in order to make sure that it's not a real risk, it's sort of a rewarded, considered risk, you need to have done all your work. And that's very hard to do if you don't have a roster of people with those backgrounds. Can you tell us about some of the companies you've already invested in and what type of companies you're likely to invest in in future? Generally, we have at a high level four investment domains, the brain and AI, genetics and platform technologies, space and robotics, and the planet and efficient energy technology. So we invest in groundbreaking companies that will penetrate or create massive markets. We invest where we feel we have an edge that others don't to source and diligence, and where we can have a differentiated ability to impact the value of the company. We are stage agnostic, which is also relatively rare, which means we invest in some companies at the earlier stages, all the way through to sometimes starting much later, which gives us a balanced portfolio of returns and also allows us to support founders all the way through and capture the value upside. In terms of specific investments, the kind of companies that we back, I'll give you a few examples. One which we've just invested in has developed an algorithm to determine the transcription factors required to turn one cell type, say a skin cell, into another cell type, say a heart cell, without going through a stem cell state. It only takes a moment of reflection to realise the significance that will have and is also highly commercial. The fetal cardiomyocyte market is expected to be $150 billion in 2022. And what's the name of that company? That's called Cellmography. And then other examples would include an AI technology that has developed a technology that is interpretable, unbiased, that does not require massive data sets. Those are three of the five limiting factors to unlocking the full potential and value of AI. And then another example would be a quantum energy technology, which will see you charge your phone once a year rather than once a day. Now, tell me there isn't a market for that. That sounds fascinating. How does that work? 
So if you shine a laser beam into a microcavity, the light interacts with atoms and kicks off a quasi-particle called a polariton. Now, the beauty of a quantum state is that everything's correlated. So the particles all spin in the same way and they move in the same direction, they flow. That's the property of a superfluid. Normally, you need liquid nitrogen temperatures to achieve that. This is done at room temperature. And so what you do is you put that into an electronic device and like a transistor, you store, switch and send using these polaritons rather than electrons. When you use electrons, they bump into each other constantly, which causes heat dissipation and loss. That's what happens when your phone heats up. But instead, these polaritons don't do that. The energy is maintained there, so it never near energy loss. Now, it's often said about the European tech sector that European scientists and researchers are fantastic at coming up with great ideas and inventions such as the ones you've just described. But Europe has a real problem in scaling a lot of these companies and that inevitably they tend to get bought by the big American companies or it's the American VC firms that really make the most of the money out of them. Is that critique fair, do you think? I think that that is changing. I think today we have entrepreneurs who realise that they want to capture the value upside. I think what is needed are less risk-averse investors and investors that are willing to stick with them all the way through. And they need this kind of support and help so that they aren't scared about getting over an activation barrier and they have the business acumen and all of the little steps along the way to help ensure that they can be a big success. Now, your fund is about $100 million at the moment. The other massive player in this area is the Vision Fund of SoftBank, which has about $100 billion. Do you think funds like that are fundamentally changing the investment game in the technology space? Yeah, this is another one I get asked a fair amount. I actually don't think they impact us for a couple of reasons. One is that the type of investments we're making would be too small to move the needle for them. And the second element is that they just can't diligence deep tech and deep science today. So they're actually more like a private equity player. Now, on the flip side, it's relatively good for us in some ways because it means that once we've developed a technology to a certain level, they're a potential exit strategy for us. So you think that they, in a way, could perform that scale-up role that Europe needs? They could certainly provide the capital in order for entrepreneurs to continue. And what does this mean for traditional companies, do you think? I mean, as you were talking about, this is a time of extraordinary technological disruption. Do you think that by investing in companies in these kind of areas and through your fund people should actually be diminishing their investments in the traditional blue chip companies, which are going to get disrupted by some of these companies? Yes, absolutely. Very clear answer to that. So people should be investing in this sort of stuff, one, as an insurance policy, two, as in sort of insight into what the next tech wave will result in. And then third, in order to make returns, this is where the returns will lie. People are realising, I think it will take a few years, there's always a few years of catch up. I think people will realise that if you actually want to change the world, to be involved in the future and to make returns, this is the place to be. And for our listeners who are predominantly retail investors, I would imagine, how can they access this world? For a retail investor, I think the best way is to invest in a fund that can give you a diversified portfolio of investments. I wouldn't really recommend sort of dabbling in this yourself. How quickly do you think we will know whether your fund has been successful? Well, the good news is that from one perspective, we do have this balanced portfolio so that some things will be exiting in the next few years, hopefully, rather than waiting for a very long time. And there'll also be step ups uh, along the way. So momentum will be building. But of course, we'll have to be judged by how many unicorns we actually do create at the end of the day. And that's your real intent to come up with billion dollar companies. Yes, it is. All right, well, we'll watch with fascination how you get on. 
I asked Alice to take part in our informal survey on overrated and underrated technologies and what non-tech book provides the best insight into the impact of technology on our societies. And here's what she had to say. I would probably go for underrated and talk to quantum energy technology. People assume that some sort of airy-fairy notion, but it's very real and going to happen much faster than we think. And what book would you recommend to our listeners, particularly a non-technological book, to understand what is going on in our world at the moment? I really loved A Life 3.0, Max Tegmark, which tells you a lot about the future of technology and how we all have a part to play in it. And he emphasises very much in that book the importance of ethics in the AI debate in particular. How important is that for you? It's very important indeed. We want to be changing the world for the better and we want to make sure that our technologies, which are very powerful, are looked after in a very responsible way. So on the importance of ethics, how are you ensuring at RN that you are investing in ethical businesses? We have a really strict ethical investment policy. In some cases, it's clearly going to be hard, but it's something that we grapple with every day. And we're incredibly careful about what we invest in, how it's controlled. And we deal with many other industry players to make sure that these things are harnessed for good. Do you have an ethics advisory board, as it were? We do. And what are the other books that you would recommend? So I must recommend On the Future, Martin Rees and Gene Machine by Vekia Ramakrishnan, two of my science partners. They're both incredibly inspiring and thoughtful reads. Thank you very much, Alice. Thank you. If you feel inspired to take part in our survey, please give us your answers to these questions and send an email to tectonic at ft.com. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.